agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland Area Attorney Jay Carson. Good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm about as wiped out after this week as uh, Bill Barr is uh, after his, I think. Yeah, but, he, did uh, have, <laughs> he did have a big week. And, yeah. And, yeah, we're definitely going get, to get into that for sure, Bob. Before we do, we, of course, want to thank our newest sustaining supporter, Jack. Jack, thank you very much. And as a Patreon supporter, you get not only that second full-length episode every week, you also get ad-free versions of all of our shows as well as other things at different levels of support. And to become a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And as always, if you'd like to hear our weekly bonus show but you can't afford to support the show financially right now, it's totally not a problem. Just email me, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will make that happen for you. And if a monthly pledge is too much of a commitment or you just like to support us on a one-time or recurring basis but don't like Patreon for whatever reason, there's also our PayPal option. You'll find the link at politicsguys.com slash support. Of course, all those URLs are always in our show notes. And one thing that helps us out enormously and that's absolutely free is you're spreading the word by sharing episodes on social media. You know, it only takes a few seconds and it is unquestionably the best sort of advertising. And Jay, speaking of advertising, if you're not a Patreon supporter getting our ad-free shows, you've probably noticed that we've had a number of in-episodes ads over the last few months and there will be more of them to come Please know that unlike our early days when, Jay, when you, remember you and I tried to do our own kind of free-form, extra-long right. ads that everyone said, God, please make it stop. Uh, it was pretty funny. Yeah, we, we, you know, we enjoyed it, yeah. But the, clearly listeners didn't. But now I do try to make them succinct, as succinct as possible. We only accept ads from businesses we feel comfortable supporting. And, you know, we just don't chill for anyone who opens their wallet. Um, and also – these ads are an important source of financial support for us. And so the more of them you listen to and the more often you get stuff we advertise using that link you'll hear at the end of the ad, the easier it is for us to keep the podcast going. So thanks so much. Okay, with that out of the way, let's start by talking about a late-breaking story. On Friday, U.S. District Court Judge Nicholas Garufis, I hope I pronounced that correctly, a Bill Clinton appointee to the bench, issued an order directing the Department of Homeland Security to announce by Monday that it is resuming the approval of new DACA applications and work permits. He also ordered DHS to return to its past practice of granting and extending DACA status for two years at a time. You might recall, I'm sure, Jay, I know, Jay, you recall that this June in a five to four ruling, the Supreme Court held that the Trump administration had not followed procedural requirements in ending the program. And Chief Justice Roberts, who wrote from the majority, said, we do not decide whether DACA or its rescission are sound policies. The wisdom of those decisions is none of our concern, at least not at this point. Here we I like, address I like that kind of yeah, <laughs> yeah. He said here we address only whether the administration complied with the procedural requirements in the law that insist on a reasoned explanation for its action. Now, my sense of things, Jay, is that this decision probably won't have a major impact because. Joe Biden's going to be president in 46 days. God, thank you. And he's committed to resuming. <laughs> you your chickens a little early. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a, it could be a long 46 days, but Biden is, is clearly committed to resuming the DACA program. And also, you know, assuming that the Trump administration isn't too distracted by the election related stuff and President Trump still cares, uh, the Trump administration certainly can appeal this decision. And then finally, there's also still a case to be decided in a Texas federal district court where multiple Republican attorneys general are arguing that the DACA program itself is unlawful. And so uh, there's, there's a lot going on here. Uh, but we also know that at this point, or at least at one point, the idea of giving dreamers legal status through legislation, not executive action, uh, was uh, certainly a possibility for bipartisan legislation, and there's strong public support for this, not just with among Democrats, but also among Republicans as well. So 
Jay, how do you see this all kind of working itself out? Well, I mean, it, it's, I mean, you're right. And this, this uh, decision isn't particularly breaking new ground. It's sort of just affirming, hey, we're going back to the, the status quo, um, which is, is appropriate, right, given, given how the Supreme Court's ordered uh, and, and uh, so forth. Now, again, this was, as you said, late breaking, so I haven't read the whole decision yet to see if there's any, anything else in there that sort of would be, uh, you know, expanding beyond uh, what, the, what the prior DACA program was. But um, my sense is that, uh, you know, just from the, the summaries I've read, that it, it isn't. Um, does this help with getting a legislative fix? Um, I would say, sadly, probably not, right? Uh, I, I wouldn't see that there would be much incentive um, for the Biden administration to pursue a, a legislative fix um, if the regulatory fix is already in there. Now, there are still other uh, other cases out there. You mentioned the te- Texas one, and then there was also, uh, you know, the Fourth uh, Circuit had had ruled against DACA. Um, uh, well, a year before, a year ago. Um, so. You know, there there likely will be other challenges to it based on its merits. Um, you know how how uh, how those play out is is going to be uh, something else. It's but a, yeah, it's it's a weird situation, Jay, because I think what we we both agree on is that it's an illegal program that was illegally terminated. So I mean, it's just yeah, not... no, exactly. Yeah, I think. Well, I, I I might disagree with you on the illegal termination piece of it, but yeah, I think that's yeah. I mean, I think that's sort of where it was. It was, it was a essentially the rationale is that, that uh, uh, President Obama exceeded his his uh, presidential authority uh, in creating the program, uh, and Trump uh, exceeded his presidential th- authority in trying to get rid of it. Well, I, I wouldn't say exceeded. Trump didn't exceed his authority, but uh, as, as he didn't always, check the boxes he had to. Yeah, they basically the Trump administration basically kind of took tore out the Administrative Procedures Act and sort of I don't know used it to make spitballs or something like that. But uh, they're not big fans of it, certainly. And this is another one of those examples. And so, my, well, I, you know, I don't, I don't know, I don't know if it's. I think it's less a thing of being big fans and, and more just of a. Uh, can no one here play this game? Yeah, uh, yeah. you know, you know, I mean that kind of thing that. Yeah, yeah. The, it, there could have been a, a way to do it pretty easily. You just make the right, uh, or I shouldn't say easily, uh, because there you could always run into some some judicial resistance. Um, but by the time you get to the Supreme Court, you you could you know have a, a decent record. But yeah, that's that's the point. It's just a matter of of showing your work, essentially, right? Making the, these findings a fact and saying here's why we're doing this, and here's the reason, and here's what we're considering in doing this. Uh, and and they didn't do that. Right. So now some might argue that DACA was different because well the the case from Jeff Sessions remember Jeff Sessions uh, on was that we don't need to show our work because if the program in in the first place was illegal then we don't have to justify ending right. an illegal program which is different than which, promulgating or removing other regulations. Right. Which I which I actually I I think that's a that's a pretty pretty damn good argument right. But yeah. um, I guess I guess there were. Um, five justices who didn't think so. <laughs> I'm, I'm with it, it, I'm with Chief Justice Roberts uh, on this one, though I do think that when it does reach the court on the merits, which I expect to happen at some at at some point, that it will be the court will uh, rule that DACA is. Uh, is not within the executive's authority to to implement would be my sense. They might be a couple of years before it gets to that point, but until that point, I don't see a legislative fix. And I do see, like like you would say, uh, uh, President Biden kind of you know using that. So, all right, uh, let's move on to uh, signs of maybe signs of progress in what has been a months long stalemate on another round of COVID relief. Earlier this week, there was a bipartisan group of senators who put forward a $908 billion stimulus framework. Now, that's significantly less than the over $2 trillion HEROES Act that the House passed in October, and that itself was a reduction of the original $3.4 trillion HEROES Act that the House passed in May. And the Senate Republican response, which which didn't emerge until late October, calls for around $500 billion in funding, as well as pretty extensive liability protection for businesses. And even though the compromise proposal has far less spending than most Democrats want, it might not be enough to attract enough support from Senate Republicans. And in my view, Jay, there are two reasons for this. Number one, 
concerns over spending nearly a trillion dollars after already around $3 trillion has been authorized by Congress. And then there's also, I think, the the concern from a lot of Republicans that uh, we want to see very robust COVID business liability protection as opposed to the much less – the, the, the much weaker protection, I guess Republicans would call it, that's been suggested in the compromise proposal. And there's been a lot of talk that well, this will be kind of made part of the fiscal year 2021 budget, uh, and that is uh, the continuing resolution ends on December 11th. Uh, you know, I, honestly, I don't have a whole lot of hope for this happening anytime soon, but I want to get your take on it. I, I still I'm sticking with uh, my prediction that I think it gets done uh, before the end of the year. Uh, I may be wrong, but I'm I'm being bold in saying that, and I think uh, so far so good. What what I predicted has come to pass. Uh, that that both sides will look at this and say, listen, there is a a real need to get something done. Um, Democrats should look at this and say, hey, there's no real downside um, because. Uh, if if we uh, are able to gain control of the Senate, well, we'll just we'll just do something more uh, when we get when we get there. Uh, if not, then we can say we've done something now uh, that that maybe helps our our chances. Um, so yeah, I, I with if, if I'm if I'm the uh, uh, the Democrats, there's you know that's sort of the the. the I guess advantage they have you you can never there can never be enough money spent so you know Nancy Pelosi can just pass another three trillion uh, uh, dollar bill in in January and and they'll run that up the flagpole and um, I think Republicans might well uh, be able to make a good case of hey look we've really done a whole lot uh, we've really uh, gone to the mat here and spent more than we certainly would have wanted to. Uh, but now with these, you know, new proposals, we're, we're just, you're just not going to get anything. So I, I, I think there's something that can still get done. Now, I, I is it going to be a targeted big? De- is it going to be a big deal? Um, or is it going to be targeted? My sense would it be it would be smaller and and targeted. You know, so. I, I think maybe a lot of congressional Democrats feel like this is going to be the last stimulus package, and no matter what what the size is, and so. It's going to be better to hold out until sometime in February and be in a position to get a lot more what they think is needed than to kind of pass something very small now to have to to have to basically I mean, they've already moved down a ton from their original proposal. And I really think that the business liability thing is going to be the huge thing. I I don't see I don't see McConnell and Senate Republicans moving much at all. On that, and I think Democrats are going to say we've moved down. We've basically come way down toward your position. We've we've compromised a lot more, and your position is basically well. Our compromise is if you want any stimulus, do what we want, and that includes the liability protection. And I think if Senate Republicans were willing to bend on the liability protection, not to eliminate it, but to make it a lot a lot less extensive, then we could see a small, a smaller deal perhaps. But I just don't see Senate Republicans doing that. No, and, and I, I, I would argue nor nor should they, because I think that's that's a fight they win. Right. I think, um, you know, when you when you come down to the, um, uh, you know, when 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 this kind of hits and, and then the, you know, the arguments start running and this would might be the arguments we might have in a couple of weeks. Um, but you know, Republicans can, can say, Hey, look, we we're ready to give you a stimulus. We're ready to write you a check America. Uh, but they want to hold it up for the, uh, tort lawyers, uh, to go and put your company out of business. Um, but that works the I, other I way a, too. I think it's a good argument. I think it, so. I, I, that's what I'm saying. I think, I think when you reach that point, I think Republicans win at least to a, a greater extent. If you're looking at where the line gets drawn, and, and you're right, it's not a it's not a line between zero protection and 100 percent 100 protection. It's it's somewhere in between. Um, but I think that line gets gets drawn close to where Mitch McConnell wants it than uh, where Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer want it. Right. So so basically, it seems like the uh, the compromise uh, will be essentially Democrats. Uh, in your view, the compromise should be Democrats basically acceding to everything Republicans want. 
What did you listen to what I just said? Well, yeah, I mean, but, but <laughs> I said that the line would be drawing closer to where Mitch McConnell wants. Right. It, then that's that's yeah, what I'm I, saying. I, well, I think that's that's not acceding to everything uh, Republicans said. Okay, every you're right. Everything was everything, but but it seems basically it seems like almost all the compromise here is coming from the left, and uh, almost none of it is coming from the right. Is my point, and and you think that's that's how it should be. Well, no, 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 no. I'm, I am, I am giving you my my steely eyed view here of of what's going to happen. Okay. Well, if you if you, you know, so I mean, I, I fair think, enough. Yeah, and I, I, I think that look, the uh, uh, Republicans just came up four hundred uh, four hundred billion, um, which is a lot of billions. Uh, I think there was probably still room to move from that on the money part. Um, the liability issue is is going to be trickier. But I think it can get done, and I think there are a lot of Democrats who don't want to be seen as uh, putting out a sop to the uh, uh, the plaintiff's bar uh, in the midst of, of COVID. I think that that plays poorly uh, in in some districts. Um, and I, I, you know, if you ask me, do I think it's good policy? I think I think it's 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 bad policy as well. So um, I think we get a deal, and and then I think the the Democrats also have the the uh, consolation that well you you said there's you know the last the last stimulus bill Mike there's no such thing as the last uh, the final stimulus bill there's always another one coming right um so uh, well, no I, I disagree about that I mean there there's certainly government spending is never going to end and nor should it but I believe that this will be there's a good chance that this will be the last big COVID stimulus bill so well I I, I disagree I I think that on uh uh, on on day one of the, uh, the new Congress, uh, the House will likely introduce, uh, no matter what happens here, the House will likely introduce another bigger, um, bigger, better COVID uh, stimulus bill, and and you know we'll be we'll have this conversation again uh, in January and February. Yeah, I, I don't I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I think that the willingness of a number of moderate or of a, a key number, a sp- even if it's a small number of moderate Democrats in the Senate to go along with that sort of thing is going to be much less, even if we pass something like uh, like five hundred billion. So that that's my sense of the answer. I think it's a tough decision for Democrats because it is a question of well, yeah, there, there's as we've talked about in past you know in past shows that there is a desperate need, especially with certain programs ending by the end of the year and that does put a lot of pressure on them but then on the other hand you think well do we do we accede to that and take care of these people when we know longer term there could be even greater negative consequences and so it's a this is i mean this is not to me if i were voting if i were voting on this this would be a really tough decision for for me to make and i do not envy senate senate democrats uh, who are who have to vote on this Okay, but we will see. All right. Well, you know, Jay, who could have possibly known that losing an election could be so incredibly good for fundraising? It's been pretty amazing. You know, in the wake of the November 3rd presidential election, so just over a month ago, President Trump has raised over two hundred and seven million dollars. And much of that has been in the form of small dollar donations in response to around 500 email requests sent to supporters urging them to contribute to a fictitious election defense fund. And if you read the small print in these funding mailers, you'd find out that around 75 percent of the money will actually be going to President Trump's new Save America leadership pack with the rest to be shared between the Trump campaign and the Republican Party committees. And there still are a few remaining legal challenges to the election results. But at this point, the campaign has spent under $9 million on legal fights and recounts. And of course, President Trump still continues uh, to maintain what I guess I could call his pugnacious insistence that he won the election by a lot. And uh, (laughs) this week, he released a wild 46-minute video on his Facebook page in which he claimed that the election system was under under coordinated assault and siege, and that it was statistically impossible for him to have lost to Joe Biden. Uh, You know, he's wrong about that latter comment, but he's absolutely right that the system is under siege. And of course, it's by President Trump and his legal team and and their efforts to overturn what I believe is fair to say is the will of the voters and and steal the election. Well, hold on a second. Okay. I I, I do want to... 
draw a line here, and I tried to draw this line a, a week or so ago too, that between the legal challenges and whatever nonsense uh, Rudy Giuliani or um, uh, Sidney um, Powell. Powell might might just spout off. Sure. Uh, because the there are legal challenges in court, and some of them raise pretty valid issues. Uh, are they of the nature that would overturn an election? No, they're not. Um, uh, but I think, you know, that... I want to draw on because there are legitimate uh, challenges to be made. Um, uh, so, uh, but, but let no, get, I, yeah, I, that's I, a fair I point. Let me, let me ask you I, something. I and, and, but I mean, the challenges that are actually being made in court uh, are not the challenges are not what uh, uh, Powell and uh, Giuliani yeah. are, are talking about or Trump's talking about. That's right? a good point. And, and I think though, if we look at the challenges in court, I think the Trump administration is one for 41 or something like that. And so I right. also think it would be fair to characterize a lot of these challenges as frivolous. I mean, Let, many of them have been laughed shot. out of court, long, essentially, long by the, <laughs> what's that? Oh, sorry. Low probability. Yeah. But, but I mean, I think that's a you know, that's certainly a uh, I wouldn't call it questionableness. But I, but I see the point you're making in that in that it's one thing to raise legal challenges, even if they are not great ones. Yeah. You know, ridiculous even, but it's another thing to go to Republican legislatures and have Republican legislators come to the white house and say, listen, we would like you to appoint a different slate of electors. Right. And, and, and it seems, and it seems that neither is, neither is likely to happen. Right. Um, uh, but no, my, my point was that the court cases, uh, none of them have really alleged a, uh, a, a a broad uh, super conspiracy and voting machines and Venezuelans and uh, all of all of that sort of sort of thing, um, which you wouldn't been, know well, from listening to the President Trump well, exactly. or Rudy that's Giuliani. What, that's what I'm saying, but that's what I'm saying is, is if you compare what's actually being filed in court, they are narrow challenges to, uh, hey, these ballots were supposed to be segregated and they weren't segregated. Uh, you know these uh, these districts allowed. Uh, uh, you know, people to do a a fix it if they uh, their mail ballot was was goofed up, and while others didn't, um, you know, there are questions of hey, observers were both supposed to be this close, but they weren't, and, and all those are are you know what we'd call irregularities, and I think they're legitimate uh, questions to raise because you always want to be raising these questions so that you ensure that that there isn't a bigger fraud. Yeah. Um, but as I think everybody. Uh, who has sort of half a brain has has pointed out um, all of those challenges do not amount to uh, overturning an election, right? So I think I, I'm I'm just trying to I'm just trying to to draw that. No, no, that's a, that's when, an important. So sure. when, yeah, when you say like he's trying to overturn the election through the courts, well, not not really. Um, no, I didn't. I didn't say. They're saying crazy stuff, uh, and he's got court cases. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, you are I, not necessarily the same thing. I would say he is he is attempting to overturn the election in any way possible. And if the courts don't work, he's more than happy to do whatever, though. It's pretty clear that at least privately, he's come to accept that Joe Biden will be the next president. And, uh, you know, there are these reports about how he's not going to invite Biden to the White House. That would have been an awkward meeting, to say the least. And he won't attend Biden's inauguration. And he may even launch his first big 2024 campaign event on the day Joe Biden is inaugurated. And, you know, I think it was last week or a couple of weeks ago that you said you you thought that there was a good chance that Donald Trump would kind of pivot and be the most magnanimous presidential transitioner ever. I, yep. Do you still feel that? I do. Really? I so do. You don't you think he's going to be there at the inauguration and invite Joe Biden in and welcome with open arms, well, mask maybe, but uh, you think all that's going to come to pass? Um, you know, whether he'll open, uh, I mean, I, I'm still thinking that. Yeah. Really? Wow. I, and I, I mean, I think, look, there, there's a long way to go between now and January 20th. That's true. That's true. Um, and Here, here's so why, I, I, here's why I think you're wronger. You're more wronger. You're more wrong wronger. about this than you have been about almost anything that I can think of, Jay. That's, that's okay. saying a lot. It's because all it's, else. it's all part of the grander narrative. Any sort of gesture or any sort of thing that could even be taken to imply that Joe Biden is a legitimate 
president. And that would be attending the inauguration. That would be inviting Biden to the White House ends up hurting Donald Trump. He has raised, as I said, over $200 million on this bogus election challenge thing. And it's a it's a brilliant move. I have to say, strategically, leadership packs, for people who don't know, leadership packs are kind of an abomination. They're, they're essentially slush funds. Uh, how it works, well, how leadership packs are intended to work, I guess you could say, in some perfect universe, is that it's a way for people in in leadership positions or really anyone in Congress or the executive branch to raise money to give to other candidates. Right. But what it's like, for, for example, it is typically like you're the head of the, your, your caucus. Yeah. Your, yeah. But anyone in Congress can start Pelosi a leadership would, pack. Would, would do the leadership pack and then distribute it to the, uh, the, the most uh, needy or deserving of their um, right. members. Right. But it, it's called a leadership pack, but you don't have to be a leader to have one. But, but the catch is, and the specifically purposefully designed catch is, you can spend leadership pack money on what are called donor support activities. And in right. other words, so if you want to bring a bunch of people Parties. together, yeah, at a, at a Trump resort <laughs> or something like that to, you know, to solicit some money, well, you can, that's perfectly fine. There's no percentage or limit on that or anything. So another way, it, it's a way of using other people's money uh, to, you know, as a slush fund, basically, which, you know, Donald Trump's a big fan of other people's money, certainly. And uh, it's, like I said, it's a brilliant strategic move. And I think that anything that is a gesture toward Biden's legitimacy hurts his ability to raise this money. And so that's why I don't think he's going to do that. And and not only that, but it's part of that, what I see as the larger Trump strategy to not just raise that money, but also to freeze out potential 2024 rivals. Even if Donald Trump doesn't run again, it still lets him you know, remain the kingmaker, retain the, the kingmaker. spotlight. Yeah, no, so. I, I, I think all that's right. No, I think you're, you're right on all that. Um, uh, and that's but why I, I don't think I don't think it's mutual exclusive, though. I think he hmm. I think he can because he's Trump. I think he can do both. I think he can say uh, I was robbed. This is the most corrupt election in history. But you know what? I'm such a good guy. I am uh, still going to uh, uh, welcome Joe Biden. Um, uh, but you know what? Uh, I'm raising money to go beat him the next time. Um, that sort of thing. Wow. I, I, I think, I, I I just, think if anybody just, can pull that off, Trump, Trump can. My jaw dropped because I think that is just the most colossal misreading. Like I said, I, I, I am positive that I've never thought with my whole heart and soul that you are more wrong, wrong. than you are. And the nice thing, though, well, is, and, I, and I may be. Look, yeah. I, I mean, look, this is this is this prediction is not being based on any sort of uh, my you know political experience or sure. or acumen or looking at polls or uh, analysis. This is just my gut feeling for this is how yep. Donald Trump operates. Yep. And and the nice thing is, is in and, four- and, if the, and the, if the, and you've, if he's given the choice of being on TV or not being on TV, he will always choose being yep. on TV. Yeah, I agree with that. But I think his, his argument is going to be the counter programming would be wonderful. And he's going to get this huge audience and lie about the size and that sort of thing, you know, because it, apparently what we've been hearing from the Biden, uh, from, from the Biden transition is that the uh, inauguration is going to be, well, at least more virtual than normal. And so I think Donald Trump could say, well, I can gather together a much bigger crowd in real time, maskless, of course, you know, than Biden can. And that would be a great way to sort of demonstrate how much better I am. But but again, we will find out in 46 days time and one of us will be completely wrong and the other one will not hold it over the other person because that's not how we operate. But it will right. be pointed now, here, out. Here's my, here's my other point. And look, I, I look at this as, you know, again, the, I'm the, the, <laughs> the, no, this is, this is the separate question. This is sort of I'm, I'm employing some actual media and political analysis and, and you know, the, the cold calculations. Um. You you do not want to be counter-programming against a presidential inauguration, um, right? No matter what happens, no matter how big your crowd is, right? The the headline will read, um, President uh, Biden inaugurated, and then below the fold, Trump holds counter-rally. Only in the main, only in the corrupt fake news mainstream media. I mean, not well, in, I, I, not I mean, at, not at Red State, not at uh, Town Hall, not at Newsmax. No, that's sure, that's it's sure. going to be no, no, no. I mean, I mean, okay, that's that's you, you have a point there. But let's look at at how how big an impact does that 
does that have? And I, I just don't see. Yeah. Um, I, I, I still, I think it, it comes down to a, a newsworthiness piece of, uh, you know, here president inaugurated and then uh, ex president uh, announces campaign. I I think you're showing your your age, Jay. We both came up in a very different news era, and I think that, yes, I would totally agree with you if this were the mid-90s or even the early 2000s, but it's not. And so, again, I— this is one of these cases where I uh, once again will say, Jay, I hope you're right, but I, I think your your analysis isn't right because the world is a much worse place than you think it is. <laughs> so, okay. But the the other point I wanted to ask you is we both seem to agree on the idea that Donald Trump is going to do everything he can to retain control over the Republican Party for the next four years. And so what effect do you think this is going to have on the Republican Party and the country over the next two to four years? Well, I think the the bigger thing that's what's going to matter is to what extent can Donald Trump generate votes? Um, and a test of that is going to be in, in uh, Georgia. Um, because look, Trump can have all the money he wants. And if he can't actually get people elected or get people to turn out, uh, it's not going to matter. Uh, in in terms of of having an influence over the party, um, you know, can he can he put in people to to run primary challenges? Uh, sure, um, but the test will be okay. How many of those challengers actually win? Um, and again, that's a question for two years down the road. Um, but uh, you know, I, I so I, I think that. Um, it, I see what you're not, saying. Just just having a whole just having a whole lot of money in the bank. Uh, doesn't mean he's going to have a whole lot of influence. I mean, it, it could be in certain districts uh, he actually uh, is a negative for for some candidates. And um, yeah, again, yeah. I think that's I think that's sort of standard political analysis. But I don't think it's Trump's analysis. You know, I, I don't I don't think it really matters a whole lot whether or not he can get people elected or bring people to the polls for for midterm races or for you know down ticket races. I think what matters is the extent to which he can uh, he can affect the presidential race and that and use that national following that very ardent following of, you know, what might be 30% or more of the electorate to be the kingmaker in the presidential primary process. So that's where I see his his influence being mm-hmm. the greatest and him maybe, again, pulling the uh, pulling the Republican Party more to the Trumpist populist right, even if he's not the nominee. And I think that's that would that's going to be an unfortunate sort of thing, because I would much rather see a, a Ben Sass type character be the Republican nominee than a, than a, any of the sort of Trump 2.0 type people who are out there. Well, I think I think look, there's there's always going to be a, a sort of a center of gravity right uh, around that that Trumpian voter, and there is going to be that pull towards more populism. I think that's that's happened, but I, but I think that happened in 2016, right? I don't think that's that changes based on anything Trump does going forward. And I think you still might be misreading Trump voters and uh, and how much personal attachment they have to him. Yeah, they really seem to. Uh, but I'm not sure that that carries through when he's out of office. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I think my, it does. My, so we'll, we, no, let me just my example. Ahead. My example on this is if you look at Ross Perot in '92, uh, Ross Perot was, uh, you know, essentially the, a kingmaker or could have been, right? And and George Bush lost because of of Ross Perot got about 20 percent of the vote. And Perot's message was very much the similar uh, populist. Uh, uh, message, although delivered less flamboyantly um, than Trump. And there were all sorts of people like, oh, where this is Perot's, uh, uh, this is going to be huge. And he's starting his own party and this is going to change everything. Um, and, you know, he ran in, in uh, again in 96. Uh, and I, I want to say, I don't know exactly what the reform party got, but it was, it was something like in the neighborhood of 3%, right? Um, yeah, I that, agree with you. And that, I think, that, I think yeah, you know, yeah. 
But, but, but I think, and again, this is where I think you're misreading, is that the media environment's entirely different. There wasn't even a Fox News when Perot made his first run, and it was just in its infancy when, uh, when he made his second run that the social media wasn't even a thing. The internet was in its infancy. And, and so this, this environment is entirely different. And so when you combine the modern media environment with the far more charismatic nature of Donald Trump, I think it's an entirely different phenomenon. I think Donald Trump is going to be the single most important Republican in the United States for the next four years, and that's going to be to the great detriment of the Republican Party and the American political system. I'm just, I'm just picturing Trump like, like um, he would be quoting the first half of that sentence. Uh, <laughs> Mike <laughs> yeah. Bernanke, I think Mike Donald Trump is the most important Republican politician. Um, Absolutely, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, let's. You know, we we mentioned just kind of uh, in passing the uh, Georgia uh, elections, I think, but and you know, whether or not Donald Trump can get people elected. And of course, we are recording this on Saturday morning and Donald Trump is scheduled to be in Georgia today. And nobody knows really when the hell he's going to say or do. Uh, anyone who says they have a clue, I think, is lying. Because one thing we know, at least one thing I know, Jay, is that when Donald Trump gets in front of an adoring crowd, it, anything, anything can really happen. But uh, we shall see. But there's a lot that depends on what happens in Georgia's to Senate runoff election. I mean, it goes back to our COVID uh, conversation. Those are on January 5th. And I don't think, Jay, either you or I believe that a Democratic-controlled Senate will end the filibuster and pass sweeping legislation. A 50-50 split would, at, at the very least, make it considerably easier for President Biden to get his top executive branch and judicial nominations through, right? Yeah. 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 So there's that. Um but, you know, there hasn't been a ton of polling so far, but from what little we've seen, both races, you know, kind of look to be pretty tight. I mean, Republicans have been directing a lot of their focus on Raphael Warnock and focusing a lot on his comments from some of his sermons as pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. And then Republicans have also been arguing, of course, that a Republican Senate will be up crucial check against the Democratic House and president. They kind of had to be a little careful about the Democratic president part because you can't you don't want to say that and get Donald Trump, you know, President Trump upset. Right, right. And but then on the other hand, Democrats are pointing to what they've been calling in many cases corruption from Senator David Perdue, who's been a very active trader and, uh, and made some seemingly uh, prescient stock trades during his time in the Senate. And Kelly Lofter as well, less active, but still at least to some suspicious trading activity. And the Department of Justice, of course, has investigated them and a number of other senators for insider trading, but they ended their investigations with no charges against anyone except for Senator Barr, and that case seems to be, I don't know, in kind of a state of suspended animation, though we should point out that it's incredibly difficult to make insider trading cases. And, you know, over the last couple of weeks, then in all as well, there have been these calls in some pro-Trump circles for Trump supporters to boycott the election. Sidney Powell, you know, said, uh, make it known you will not vote at all unless your vote is secure. Yeah. And then Lynn Wood, who I don't know where he's coming from, but it's kind of a his past is sort of very democratic, but he's made some really strong arguments and and it's a it should be a pretty interesting race. What, what do you think about this, Jay? Well, I, I, I'd say I haven't worked in a, a whole lot of elections um, and and far be it for me to question the, the wisdom of, of uh, <laughs> Washington people. But yeah, telling people uh, telling your people not to vote is usually not a good strategy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, uh, you know, I, I, I think we just kind of take that with a, a grain of salt. I, I don't know that I, again, I, I don't know how much that really penetrates uh, out there with, with the audience that, you know, someone's going to say, yes, this is crooked. I'm not going to vote. Um, because I think it, the, the illogic w is, is pretty self-evident, right? Yeah. That, you know, so but of course I don't it doesn't take a lot of people, right? I mean, if it's a close race, uh, if a couple thousand people say, right. "Yeah, I'm not going to do that," that could be a that can that could make the difference in these races. Yeah, but I mean, are, are my again, my sense is always, are they going to do that? Not do that anyway, mm, gotcha. right? Um, as opposed to just because Sidney Powell said something. Um, but uh, and the other thing that, that I would would point out is, you know, there's a saying that a week is a long time in politics. And and we got about four weeks uh, till we till we get to the actual election. So I think that 
this, you know, <laughs> let's put, I think that telling people not to vote, I don't think that's going to catch on. No, I, 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 certainly it's not going to be a widespread sort of thing. And yeah. my I, again, I said, you know, I say that we don't know what President Trump's going to say by the time listeners hear this, that we probably will know. But my sense of things, if I if I had a bet, I would say that he's going to urge people to vote because he realizes that it would certainly be a a, a better thing. And so even though he may say some things, some other things, I think. A big part of his message is going to be to urge people to to get out to vote. And certainly there are plenty of people in the Republican establishment who are hoping and praying he's going to say that. Yeah. And, and look, you can again, you can make the the argument still say, hey, this is completely corrupt. Look at these crooks. This is terrible. But the only way that you can fix it is to get out and vote. Right. So and that's I mean, that's actually quite, quite honestly, that's that's been a, a Democratic talk, talking point for forever. Right. Yeah, um, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Going going back to I mean the you know, um, the sort of horrific uh, this was what two thousand four that you know when you don't vote a church burns I mean that that kind of thing, um, uh, or this this you know there's there's this uh, impression out there that people are trying to disenfranchise you so you need to go out and vote uh, Trump is stealing the post the uh, post office boxes, um, the or the mailboxes uh, to prevent you from voting I mean that kind of that kind of stuff um, so I think there there may be some of that right that. You know, and I, again, I, that's that's assuming there's a well thought out strategy, and I, I don't. I think that's probably a, a pretty generous assumption. Yeah. But what I'm what I'm saying is, I think there's a a pivot back from you can still have, yeah, look at all these crooks, uh, but you should still vote. And I think that's what he'll. I think that's again. I'm going to go on record saying I think that's what he will say uh, sometime today. So Jay, there's a broader policy issue here, really, I think, and that is the issue of whether or not members of Congress should be allowed to trade individual stocks. And, and you know, there actually has been legislation proposed, in fact, bipartisan legislation, uh, something this year called the Trust in Congress Act that would require members of Congress to put their investments into, or certain investments at least, into a blind trust. And I was wondering what, what you thought about requirements like that, and if you feel that the the potential problems for members of Congress with in, insider trading in the sense of it can be difficult to know, even from a member of Congress's perspective, what is and is not public information. And is it just is it something that needs to be maybe addressed through some sort of legislation? What do you think? Well, you know, I think we, we talked about this last, last week, and it may have been on the bonus show, um, so not everybody mm -hmm. heard it. But, um, yeah, my sense is, look, that's a good idea. That's a good prudential idea that they should put things into a blind trust because that way uh, there can be no hint of impropriety. Um, am I in favor of legislation that would require it? Uh, no, because I, I think the, the better way to handle it is through the sort of the hurly burly of the, the political process, right? If uh, these folks have to run, an opponent wants to say, uh, listen, uh, I'm, I'm willing to put my assets into a blind trust to show you uh, that I uh, have uh, great integrity and would not uh, uh, trade on information that I might uh, be privy to and my opponent will not, um, then that's a, that's a good, that's a good political uh, push to do that. So, um, that's, that's all my, I mean, I, I, my preference would be to have it done that way as opposed to legislatively, uh, where they, they do it. And there's always a way of, well, are they really doing it or are they, they cheating? Right. Um, so, but, but no, I, I would say the, the overall wisdom of, of, of that being a goal, I, I think is, is yeah. good. And, and I think in a less polarized time that, counting on the voters to take that into account might actually have meant something. But nowadays, it, it seems like more and more people are saying, you know, I don't care what kind of a crook he is. At least he's not a Democrat, you know. And so I, right. I, I, uh, I guess my problem here is while sort of on a temperamental, fundamental basis, I agree with you. I also feel like I don't want to give members of Congress essentially a free pass to do things that I feel are deeply unethical simply because they can get away to get away with it. Thanks to polarization, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, 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 I get it. Yeah. I get where you're coming from. Um, so, so yeah. And, um, and, and yeah, you know, I, I, I would say again, that the goal, and, and if I were, if I were running for the Senate, which, which you are, uh, that's <laughs> you know, right. you set up, set up that, uh, that blind trust, you know, so, um, 
you know, just because I think that's that's the smart thing to do politically, and and uh, it, it safeguards you against um, uh, you know claims by uh, by opponents. So yeah, I would be whether def- whether whether it's required or not. Yeah, to me, is kind of superfluous. Yeah, I would definitely be in favor of that, as well as uh, uh, changing the rules about leadership packs so they couldn't you know be essentially huge slush funds. Not that that would ever pass Congress, but uh, anyway. So yeah, we we talked about Bill Barr a little bit at the, at the top of the show. At least you jokingly did. And, you know, Bill Barr has had a big week. Early this week, he announced that the Justice Department found no voter fraud on a scale that could have affected a different outcome in the election. And President Trump, of course, disputes this. And according to a number of administration sources, he's pretty upset with Barr, though I don't know that it will raise to the raise to the level of him being fired, given that there are only 46 more days uh, for him to be in that job. But Trump has also been upset with Barr for not moving along the investigation of the Russia probe investigators headed by U.S. Attorney John Durham. And of course, Donald Trump hoped that this would result in a damning report being released prior to the 2020 presidential election. That didn't happen. But this week, Barr named Durham a, a special counsel, which will provide Durham with additional protection from the Biden administration because a special counsel can only be fired by the attorney general for misconduct, dereliction of duty or a conflict of interest. And Barr did say that this week that Durham's investigation has been narrowing to focus on the conduct of FBI agents who worked on the Russia investigation. And he's regularly said that former President Barack Obama and Joe Biden are not implicated in Durham's investigation. And also, I should point out that Barr issued Durham's special counsel appointment order on October 19th, but he kept it sealed until this week so as not to have an effect on the election, which I expect is another move that was almost certainly met with some disapproval from the White House. Yeah. So, so Jay, what, what do you think about uh, Bill Barr's big week? Well, my my uh, respect for, for Bill Barr uh, continues unabated. Uh, you know, I, I think I, I think these were, were all sort of the, the right calls to make. Um, I mean, on the on the one hand, on the, the uh, voter fraud issue, I, I, it's not even making a, a call. It's just saying, here's what the evidence is. Um, and I, I think as attorney general, it's it's uh, head of the Justice Department. It's absolutely incumbent upon him to uh, see that elections are are uh, fair and uh, uh, un, unblemished uh, to call out problems uh, where he sees them, uh, but also to make clear the scope of those problems. And I think that's that's exactly what he did. And that's sort of been the uh, what what I've been saying, and I think to some extent you've been saying for for months now is. Voter fraud does happen, uh, but for it to happen on the scale that the president alleges uh, is 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 very difficult to pull off. Uh, and there would be there is at this point no evidence to suggest that uh, it happened. So I I think he's he's correct there, and um, and continuing the the uh, investigation and withholding the 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 naming of, of a uh, special counsel. Uh, again, I, I think that was the correct thing to do as under um, justice department guidelines uh, and also just the right thing to do um, uh, overall. Right. That, that uh, because, because I think if, if you are interested in the integrity of the system uh, and my issue for, for years now has been uh, were the uh, law enforcement and, and, um, uh, uh, surveillance uh, powers, intelligence uh, powers, um, you know, brought to bear uh, for domestic political reasons. Uh, that's a really big and important question. And I think um, if whatever answer we, we have to it, we have to it, uh, it ought to be given outside of the, the context of an election, if you follow me. I probably didn't state that yeah, as no, well no, as I could have, I- but I, I guess here's my problem with the. I mean, I obviously agree with the election part of it because if there's nothing, if there's nothing there, I mean, nothing major there. There's nothing major there, and I also agree with you that we've never had uh, any kind of large scale election without certain irregularities, a small amount of of fraud, and from the Except begin- maybe 1960, which well, we could still, <laughs> yeah, which, no, but I, I just think that's an interesting historical debate to have. But, but yeah, right, go ahead. Here's my problem with the special counsel thing, uh, and, and it's a legal problem. I right. looked up I looked up the the statutes governing this and uh the grounds for appointing a special counsel uh one of the one of the 
requirements that has to be met is, and I'll just read the text, that investigation or prosecution of that person or a matter by a United States Attorney's Office or litigating division of the Department of Justice would present a conflict of interest for the department or other extraordinary circumstances. So right there, I have a problem, or at least a question arises to me, if John Durham is to be appointed a special counsel, which he was, then it sounds to me like under the rules governing when a special counsel is appointed, he should have been appointed a special counsel at the very beginning, because how could this how could this be legitimate if it didn't present a conflict back when Barr named him as the investigator, as a U.S. attorney, and now he's a special counsel? I, 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 that doesn't that doesn't seem to square with with the law, with the legal requirements. And secondly, one of the actual qualifications for a special counsel is that the special counsel shall be selected from outside the United States government. And John Durham, as a United States attorney, is not from outside the United States government. So it seems to me as a matter of law, this is an illegitimate, this is an illegitimate appointment. And I wanted to get your take on that. So I, there's actually, you know, there, and, and I've, I've read up on, on some of this, um, on on some of these uh, legal blogs, there's there's multiple um, uh, CFR regulations that would would allow for a special counsel, um, and the ones you're looking at, it's uh, 28 CFR 600.3, and it talks about the from outside the government. Um, and then 600.1 uh, is grounds for appointing a special counsel. Yeah, 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 and and but there's also uh, 607, which is. Um, uh, there is sort of a broad uh, uh, authority for um, uh, for an attorney general to to uh, uh, to uh, to appoint people. And for example, um, uh, Patrick uh, Fitzgerald uh, was appointed uh, by Jim Comey, even though Fitzgerald was a, a, a current U.S. Uh, uh, attorney. Um, so uh, there's there's precedent there that. That uh, they can be appointed outside of the special counsel regs, right? That the the AG has sort of an apparent uh, inherent authority to do that. Um, so I, I guess the, you know, I, I that's that's it, it's a it's an op- sort of an open question. What about um, the other thing? Jay? But it's certainly it's not it's not unprecedented. Well, what about the the question of when you do appoint a special? I mean, it seems to me that the the, the spe- a special counsel it's designed for when there would be a conflict or an issue that you couldn't have somebody within the Department of Justice investigating this. So you have that outside person. That's the whole rationale for it. And so if this was that sort of case, how is it that all of a sudden, starting in October, there was this conflict where the Department of Justice couldn't investigate it, but back when Barr appointed a U.S. attorney, there wasn't this conflict. That's what confuses me. And I think that's what makes a lot of people on the left say this seems like very much not a legal thing, but a political move. Well, I think, I think it goes to the same, same issue of is he what exactly what authority is he being appointed under? Is it, is it that a uh, CFR rake or not? Um, no, I'm sorry. Otherwise, I, I, I think I was, you can make, you can make an argument yeah. that, and, and again, I don't have all the, the, the details to, to make that argument. Um, but I, if, if I did, <laughs> if I did, it would go something like this, that, um, you know, we, we knew more in October than what we knew during the initial appointment, uh, that there may have been a, a conflict, uh, that was okay. uh, not apparent initially, um, uh, but became apparent as we got more evidence. And then further, the argument would be that we can't actually say that because we can't explain what that is because it's part of the investigation. Right. And we can't explain it and we're not going to release it now, uh, that information before an election, because, uh, you know, the the idea that this might be seen as attempting to influence an election. Well, then I guess I would say putting the most charitable possible reading on this, that the Justice Department and the attorney general did a really bad job of messaging on this. I, I suppose. I, gosh, I would think you'd be you would be happy with Bill Barr this week, though, right? I mean, if, if for someone who is supposedly a a a puppet of uh, of Donald Trump, I mean, I, I certainly 
has has done a lot of things that would would seem to be uh, not <laughs> if Trump were pulling the strings, he didn't do a very good job of it. And and I've I've never said uh, at least if I have I I, uh, I will retract that. But I've never thought that Barr is a puppet of Trump. I've just felt that he was appointed Attorney General because he had a view of executive power that is very much in line with Donald Trump. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. Well, wants that's to do, enough. and yeah. so you can you know. You could, so I never thought it was about him having any kind of fealty to Trump, but just about him having a fealty to executive power, I guess. Yeah. And I have right, major fair. issues with with that. But but no, I mean, I, I feel like this was uh, – it, it, just, it just seems to me that, like I said, even the most charitable reading, that this was a really bad job of explaining what happened and why. And so I – yeah, I, I – I don't. I mean, I think from a practical standpoint, it doesn't matter. And you can even argue that the best possible thing for the Biden administration, which I don't think they're going to do anything, whoever Joe Biden has as his attorney general is not going to relieve uh, Durham of this, you know, uh, even if there is cause, the best thing right. that's going to happen is just let this go. And right now, at least from what we know, it looks like there's not a whole lot there. There's been one indictment, I believe, for an FBI agent uh falsifying a document, I think, or something like that. But it's right. been... Which it, was pretty significant, actually. Yeah, but, but it's not been the Kraken sort of changing, thing. That, changing to yeah. is working for us to is not working for us. Right. But but but, yeah. but it has not been the... It has not been the massive deep space, deep, deep space, deep state conspiracy <laughs> that many on the right have been screaming about. It doesn't look like there's a whole lot there, really, which is not to say it's not worth investigating. But, uh, but yeah, so... Say so in the end, I don't think this is going to amount to much of anything. I think the report, when it does come out, is going to say, "Hey, there were some FBI people who did some dodgy stuff, and some of them should be relieved, and and I think have been relieved, and that's going to be pretty much the end of it." Yeah, well, I mean, we'll we'll wait and see what the the uh, report says, but uh, yeah, I would agree that I I don't think the Biden administration uh, would be smart to do it. I don't, and I, I agree that I don't think they will. Uh, try to uh, relieve him of those duties. Yeah. All right. Well, that. Uh, but before we get to before we get to our closing stuff, we should, we haven't done recommendations in a few weeks. Jay, I realize. So, do you? Why don't we close with that? Do you have any recommendations this week, folks? Oh, so you know what? Um, you know, usually I try to recommend some something kind of highbrow, and this is kind of like sort of highbrow. But uh, I yeah, should we've point out, watching- Jay, I'm going to interrupt you to say Jay is our resident highbrow person. He uh, he is the high culture guy. I am the medium at best, the low culture guy. And so, Jay, you once I, accused me of being a cultural elitist. There you go. There I, you I go. I stand by that accusation. Um, and, and yeah, the reason the reason being was I was not a fan of. Um, uh, country music. And that uh, will be part of my Senate platform. I, I can tell exactly. you that I know the difference between Merle, <laughs> Merle Haggard and Waylon Jennings. And yeah, that was, the, that was your reason for calling me a cultural elitist. <laughs> um, uh, but no, uh, we've been watching the crown, um, on uh, Netflix and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm someone who is not into the whole, you know, British royalty bit. Um, as an American, I, I find it just kind of, it's just sort of weird, right? And and sort of confusing. Um, but I have to say that that I, I really have been enjoying uh this season. Um I didn't really watch the other seasons, I kinda sorta did. Um, but uh now we're like it's it's up to the nineteen eighties. Uh so uh Margaret Thatcher and uh, Princess Die and it's it's a lot of fun. And uh I'm also uh happy my uh my oldest daughter has has uh I've gotten this big attachment now to Margaret Thatcher. And oh, God. Uh, following up <laughs> oh, well. So, uh, so no, I, I recommend that. I think it's, it's, uh, it's a well-done uh, show and uh, interesting historically. There, there are some pieces of it where, uh, you know, liberties have been taken, dramatic liberties have been taken, I think. Um, and there's some good stuff online where you can read about that. Uh, to sort out, you know, what is, what is the actual real true story and what is, is sort of the, you know, Right. Again, stuff has to you know to make it a good show, um, but uh, no, I think it's worth watching. Okay, well, you you went uh, at least at least middle to high, and I will I right. will uh, I will go low. And my recommendation for this week recommendation for this week is a classic, a cinematic classic, The Blues Brothers, uh, 1980 movie with John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd that my wife and I watch at least once a year, often more. I've probably seen it. 30 or 40 times over the course of my life. And, and and it is, I actually recently realized that there are people in the world who have not 
seen it. And I realized that when I was looking at a list of the greatest comedies of all time, and it was not on this list. And I was, I was scandalized. The, the Big Lebowski also wasn't on the list. And so, that, but anyway, I, I, immediately I started thinking about the movie and I felt a great need to watch it and, and proselytize about it. And not only is it a great movie, but Ten, I believe around 10 years ago during one of its anniversaries, 35th anniversary, something like that, it was declared a Catholic classic according to the official Vatican newspaper. So it is not just – Pope loves the Blues Brothers. You, you know, I, I would expect that this pope would appreciate the Blues Brothers. But if you have not seen the Blues Brothers, do yourself a favor and watch it because it is one of the great movies of – all time, not even the great comics. I put it in my top five, right up there with one or two of the Godfathers and Apocalypse Now and a few other things. I go dark sometimes. But uh, yes, that is my recommendation, a true cinematic comedy classic, The Blues well, Brothers. Well, and, and I, would, I would say that I, w- I would count The Blues Brothers uh, in sort of a, uh, what I would call high culture. I think that is worthy. Um, <laughs> All right, then. Well, I well, uh, hope you enjoy those recommendations. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, but we have some things, as always, that we couldn't get to. Like, for instance, we were going to talk about uh, an important case, I would say, about North Carolina's voter ID law, which was upheld by a federal appellate court. And also Donald Trump threatening a veto of the National Defense Authorization Act over Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which you might think those two things aren't related. And you would be mostly right. Anyway, we're we're going to talk about that and maybe also take some listener questions on the bonus show. And if you are a supporter, you will be getting that midweek. And if you're not a supporter and you'd like to become one, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. And remember, always, if you can't afford to become a supporter, but you want all that stuff, send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I'm happy to get you full access to that second weekly episode. If you'd like to get in touch with us, mail at politicsguys.com. And uh, yeah, uh, finally, we would also like to give a special thanks to our executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.